3: apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast
4: that's, right. that's right too much information is a production of iHeartRadio. hello
5: everyone and welcome to too much information the show that brings you the secret histories and little known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies music tv shows and more we're your two ghosts of podcast future. Podcasts future. <laughs> Either way, it's good. Yeah. I'm Alex Seigel, And I'm Jordan Rontag. And Jordan, today we're kicking off the holiday season with a relatively, I say relatively, but yes, we're old, relatively recent entry into the canon, the holiday canon, that is. The movie that taught us late period Michael Caine could still summon some of his Get Carter era menace, even while he was <laughs> surrounded by felt frogs. That's right. <laughs> We're talking about The Muppet Christmas Carol, the first Muppets film to be released following the death of both Jim Henson and longtime Muppeteer Richard Hunt, and the first directed by Henson's son, Brian. Like most American children of a certain age, I got The Muppets through my older cousins and parents. We're talking like Muppet Show, some of the first movies. So Muppets Christmas Carol was for me really like the first of these movies that felt like mine, like that I grew up with, got it on the ground floor with. Yeah, I, I agree completely. As a Michael Caine devotee and a Muppets fan, this is like, this. Is, I mean, it is like Christmas for you, but where does, this movie,
4: where does this movie sit for you? Somewhere north of Citizen Kane? I mean, it is definitely up there for me. I mean, I'm wary of playing the whole, you know, this children's movie traumatized me card too much because I get the sense that that's sort of like it or not become my thing given, uh, <laughs> you know. Fern Gully, uh, what else have we discussed? we had a few on the show so far. Almost all of them hurt you in some way, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but this movie, truly not for kids. It packs an adult-sized punch. I remember the scenes when Scrooge is revisiting his past, and they introduced yeah. me to the concept of regret as a kindergartner, which, uh, that's a hell of a thing. Perhaps second only to death as one of life's great bummers uh speaking of which lots of death in this movie the ghost of christmas future is basically the grim reaper right and he takes scrooge yeah. to his grave horrifying they um, were gonna
5: have gonzo play that character but they were just they were still gonna go with the same wardrobe but <laughs> just have his nose sticking <laughs> uh, out that's, of
4: it. that's pretty good actually yeah yeah they uh you know what's that viral tweet that makes the rounds every christmas yep yeah, michael Caine, gonna play this as serious as a heart attack And by God, he does. Uh, I mean, for me, the moment that I returned to, if I ever needed to like summon tears during high school theatrical productions or whatever, was, I'm gonna, I don't even know if I can say it, the scene when Beaker, as whatever Dickensian character he's meant to be playing, offers Scrooge his scarf as a gift. And Scrooge is just stunned because no one's ever given him a gift before. I... I can't continue this anecdote because of my (laughs) rapidly constricting throat. But uh, damn, a dramatic tour de force. I still hear one more sleep till Christmas every Christmas Eve, even though I'm about to be 35. Uh, Yeah, the older I get, the more I realize that Scrooge gets the best present of all waking up on christmas day and all of his poor life choices have been erased <laughs> and everything is better
5: well from the protracted process that it took for a muppeteer to rally and take over the role of kermit to the character whose lot in life in this movie was solely to be abused me <laughs> to michael kane's continuing war against blinking <laughs> here's everything you didn't know about the muppet christmas carol jim henson died at the age of 53 in new york from streptococcal toxic shock syndrome on may 16th 1990 he had been negotiating with michael eisner then the head of disney about selling the muppets <laughs> frank oz never one to mince words i <laughs> told the guardian in 2021 the disney deal is probably what killed jim it made him sick Eisner was trying to get Sesame Street 2, which Jim wouldn't allow. But Jim was not a dealer. He was an artist, and it was destroying him. It really was. Just always got to get a jab in at Disney. Oh, we got Katzenberg coming later. Don't worry. (laughs) For those of you keeping a sharp Katzenberg watch, enemy of the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg (laughs) will surface later. Um, Brian Henson told UpRocks in 2015, my father died while he was making the Muppet 3D movie attraction for Disney, and Frank Oz finished that movie for my dad after my dad passed away. Gonzo and Waldorf performer Dave Goals told The Guardian in 2015 that Jim died very suddenly, and we were just flattened by it. Brian called a meeting to see whether we wanted to continue without Jim, and every single one of us said, it just feels like our life's work, and we'd like to try and go ahead. That was about 5 p.m. on the day he died. How do we feel about <laughs> that? Imagine imagine your work calling that level of, of meeting.
4: <laughs> Good lord. Anyway, but I mean I I would pray to have done work that people felt was so important that it need to be continued after I was gone. Yes. So it goes both ways. Henson's son, Brian, told
5: The Guardian, Jim had done three Muppet movies, and I didn't want too much of a direct comparison between me and my dad. So I thought, let's do something different. Our agent, Bill Haber, said to me, Christmas Carol is the greatest story of all time. You should do that. While I was thinking about it, he called me back and said, I've sold it to the ABC TV channel.
4: (laughs) Was Jim Henson's body even cold yet when they were making this deal? God. Ah, They moved
5: fast, man. Brian continued to Uproxx, it was terrifying at the time, and it was a lot of pressure to take over. Just to be running the company was already a big pressure for me, and I'll be honest, I did not want to direct up Muppet Christmas Carol. I had approached a couple of other directors who were favorites of mine and favorites of my father's, and they both said, no, you should do it. At the time, I was really quite terrified of it. I also felt like I have a lot I need to already be doing trying to run the company Honestly, it was like I had to direct it because that was just what everybody was saying. Everybody was saying, no, Brian, you direct it. You direct it. I had
4: not directed a feature. (laughs) And I'm mourning the loss of my father. I feel like it's a crucial thing that he should
5: add in there too. Several leads in there were buried. My father just died and I have never directed a movie before. He said, I had directed television and second units on features, but it was definitely a big step for me. It was scary and I didn't want to screw it up. He acquitted himself very well, though. Uh, Goals told The Guardian, Michael Caine got halfway through the film before he found out it was Brian's first time directing.
4: He couldn't believe it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Brian Henson has kind of become, I don't know, for any music fans, like the the Giles Martin of the Muppets, kind of the custodian Mm. of his father's legacy, overseeing like what Giles Martin does for the Beatles. His father was George Martin, the Beatles producer. I know he has his detractors and he has his fans, but he's done a hell of a lot to keep the Muppets um, going in the wake of his father's death.
5: This is the first Muppet movie with a human in the starring role. And initially, they didn't have Gonzo in as Charles Dickens, the writer of The Christmas Carol. In fact, they were also just aiming for a completely different tone to to begin with. Um, In these early development stages, Henson said, The Muppets are famous for questioning the status quo and anti-establishment irreverence. So we took that and pointed it at Charles Dickens. (laughs) The Muppets aren't the weather underground. (laughs) (laughs) We were going to do a parody. And to that end, uh, they were going to have a Muppet version of Charles Dickens doing the narration, and they were going to fill in all the story's roles with the Muppets. So, like, they were going to have a custom-made Muppet being the Charles Dickens character, you mean? And they were going to have Miss Piggy in as the Ghost of Christmas Present, <laughs> um, <laughs> with Gonzo set to play the Ghost of Christmas Future, and uh, either Robin uh,
4: Kermit's nephew or Scooter as the ghost of Christmas Past. Oh yeah, didn't the actor playing Scooter die, and they decided to write him out just sort of like in tribute, and that was why there's no Scooter in this movie. You are correct about that, Jordan.
5: Scooter is uh, was puppeteered by Muppeteered by uh, Richard Hunt, who died in I think he just died ninety two. He's one of the people that the film is dedicated to, so no Scooter. But what happened was that the screenwriter, a guy by the name of Jerry Jewell, was so in love with the book, Brian said, his feeling was, look, the Dickens dialogue is absolutely fantastic, as we all know from all the movies and stage shows, but the Dickens prose, when Dickens describes a scene or describes a character, it's so, so good. He said, I want to put in a character that is Charles Dickens. And then we thought, who's the least likely in order to make it funny? Gonzo was basically the least likely choice to play Charles Dickens. But pretty much everything that Gonzo says is straight out of the book. Probably 95% of his dialogue is Dickens prose, and maybe 5% are little asides and quips that we threw in there. This makes The Muppet Christmas Carol one of if not the most faithful adaptation of the uh, of the original book and they even found ways to sneak in nods to some of dickens more uh, weird turns of phrase in there there's a uh, 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 he's describing ebenezer's sense of uh, of a room as a sense of darkness and the the line is like bad lobster in a dark cellar <laughs> and so you can as the camera pans across london you can see in the background a lobster hanging out of a basement window. So that is an incredibly deep cut
4: reference that they threw into the, the original prose. <laughs> Yet another good line. Darkness was cheap and Scrooge liked it. Most yeah, of my Dickens quotes I, I know
5: from The Muppets yeah. Christmas Carol. As we put Gonzo in as the narrator, as it started coming together, we were thinking, you know what? This really becomes an opportunity for a great actor to do their Ebenezer Scrooge, Henson told Uproxx. Among the actors considered for the lead role were David Warner, Ron Moody, a.k.a. Fagan from the 1968 Oliver, and David Hemmings. From Blow Up. <laughs> and I've also seen uh, Peter O'Toole's name floating around Ooh. as an also-ran. And I was not able to pin down where this originally came from, but they apparently got George Carlin in there uh, as far as a screen test, which does make sense because he would have just been coming off of the... Um, Mr. Conductor in the shiny time station bill and ted as well oh right um, yeah so george carlin was was having a moment on the screens both large and small i thought he would have been great honestly yeah. i mean michael kate is perfect but i'm i'm actually dying to see george carlin play scrooge that would be amazing and I have also read that Jack Lemon, uh, they approached Jack Lemon to play Scrooge, and he wanted to play Kermit, <laughs> and they were like, "Are you? Do you know how this works?" Like, <laughs> No, <laughs> I, I mean he would be a very good Kermit. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but Henson said that they only ever got as far as making an offer to Michael Kane, who was apparently motivated to do this by the fact that he hadn't yet done a movie his then seven-year-old daughter could see him in.
4: Is sad. Also, kind of nuts that he had a seven year old granddaughter. Daughter. Oh, granddaughter. Did I? Eh, I don't know. He could have had a seven year old daughter.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, hang on. It's going to be such a bummer you, you, when he goes, man. Eh, you're going to cry. Yeah. I know. Can't think what I've actually seen him in beyond get Carter. Italian job? Oh, yeah. Alfie? You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> yeah. We got to work that in here. <laughs> um,. Yes, that's what he says. My daughter, who is the mother of my grandchildren, was then seven, and she had never seen me in a movie. My daughter, who is
4: the mother of my grandchildren? it's usually how it works, Michael.
5: I mean, this was a recent interview. He's probably... Yeah. You know?
4: mm, okay. Mm. But yeah, I think I also read that he was kind of pissed that he missed out on appearing on the original Muppet Show, which had filmed in England yes. back in the mid '70s. But he was living in the U.S. as a tax exile at the time, and like all of his British friends, like Peter Sellers, all were on the Muppet Show and said it was a blast, and he was bummed he missed out.
5: Yeah, and uh, in the very first meeting, this is the the most oft told part of of him being in this movie. Um, Henson says, in the first meeting, he said, Brian, I'm going to play Scrooge like I'm acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm never going to wink to the camera. I'm not going to adjust my performance at all because it's puppets. I'm going to pretend that this is a very, very sincere, dramatic telling of the Christmas Carol because I think that'll be
4: the funniest choice. (laughs) Not funny. Just, just, just devastating. (laughs) Didn't he also say that he found this his most difficult and stretching role that he ever took? Something like that, where he, where he talked up this role in later years.
5: Well, he had to contort himself because, and there's some of the behind right. the scenes stuff that you see. There's like a lot of, you know, because they the, the Muppets are controlled from below. And so they had to have these like, like channels. The floors. Yeah, channels cut out of and removable panels cut out from all the flooring. So there's, he would have to almost like tightrope walk while <laughs> delivering all these lines so that the puppeteers had space on either side of him. It's really wild. Uh, Oh, yeah. He told this uh, magazine, The List, uh, for the role. My basic role models came from watching CNN and seeing the trials and tribulations of all the Wall Street cheats and embezzlers. I thought they represented a very good picture of meanness and greed. My Scrooge looks particularly irredeemable and is more psychotic than most. (laughs) Uh, He also continued his
4: uh, habit of avoiding blinking in close-ups, as we've covered before. Well, we should we should probably update people who maybe are just tuning in. Yeah, Michael Caine uh, has a thing about not blinking. Supposedly, it came from a book that he
5: had called "Teach Yourself Film Acting." And that's it was just adorable. A, and, and there were a number of bullets. Yeah, it's like Daniel uh, Larusso learning karate out of a book. Uh, there was a tip in there that said, "Never blink. It weakens you." And he sent. He said he spent the next eight years training himself not to do that. Uh, he told the mirror at one point, "For the next eight years, I walked around trying not to blink. People around me, my mother, and everybody thought I had gone nuts. They thought I was a psychopath. I used to frighten the life out of people." <laughs> so he, I guess he, and you can, I, I guess he still does it in the Batman stuff. I don't know. He he he's cries a lot in the new Batmans when he's yeah. all Alfred. So maybe it's softened but yeah you yeah, you you have a favorite early internet video that just loops him saying don't blink right is that eeb's oh, yeah. world mean, or something
4: either that or you're the man now dog yeah there was this uh basically how to act for dummies video tutorial that michael Caine made in the 80s that's out there on youtube and it's it is just tremendous watch it it's so incredible just to watch this you know world class actor talking about just these like like how to hit a mark and all these like really kind of simple things about how to act a camera and yeah he talks uh at length about uh about <laughs> about the concept of not blinking basically which not really much of a concept but <laughs> god love him he very
5: much enjoyed the experience i mean he told gq and this was this is many years after the fact this interview That's he says, a, he
4: enjoyed the experience of making the muppets christmas carol not of not blinking <laughs> yes yes although he might have enjoyed that too Yeah, Uh, he said acting with Kermit was just like talking to a real actor, and the
5: guy is just down below, buried in the floor.
4: Again, I love it. He's like, I just imagine he's explaining this to the interviewer as if he thinks the interviewer has no idea how Muppets work. Let you in (laughs) on a piece of movie making magic. There's a man below Kermit
5: controlling him. Anyway, he said it's very funny when you see the puppeteers rehearsing because they're in the corner and they haven't got the dolls on their arms and they're just talking to each other with their hands. Uh, one of the best things about puppeteers compared to actors is that they're they're much nicer, gentler, kinder people. They're really the loveliest of people. I'd never worked with a cast where every single person was lovely. You always get a couple of actors who think too much of themselves. But these were all kind, gentle, loving people, and I had the best time. I wish and one there's... of us could do a
4: Michael Caine impression because I'm reading all of this as you say it in his head, yeah. uh, in his voice.
5: Yeah. Can you? Ah, uh, maybe. I'm not, I haven't been drinking, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's one last connection with me and the Muppets, he said. I come from South London where Charlie Chaplin, whom I knew, is from. And the Muppets now have the Charlie Chaplin studio.
4: Oh, yeah, they've got a little statue of Kermit out front dressed as the Tramp. Real full circle moment. Which is also, it used to be the A&M studios where the Carpenters recorded a lot of their early songs. Many of which were written by Paul Williams, who we'll talk about later. He wrote the music for this movie. Layers on layers. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more
3: Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
4: Speaking of Kermit, that's right. Casting Ebenezer Scrooge was relatively easy compared to recasting Kermit in the wake of Jim Henson's death. Famously, Jim Henson had been the creator and the voice of Kermit, and he basically viewed Kermit as an extension of himself. So casting, you know, you really had to kind of not only nail the voice, but really Get the spirit of Jim there. I mean, these puppeteers really treat these characters as, I don't want to say as people, because that's not quite right, but just as entities that are very deserving of respect. Uh, And the role of Kermit went to Atlanta native Steve Whitmire who got into puppetry as a little boy, age 10, writing to Jim Henson, who wrote him back, which I love. And the Mm -hmm. two shared a birthday, which is also very cute. And he asked Jim Henson if he had any books on puppetry. And they got into a, 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 a minor pen pal correspondence. And after graduating high school, Steve Whitmire eventually got a job working on The Muppet Show in 1978. And he went on to perform in Basically, every major Jim Henson company project, including non-Muppet projects like the Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and the TV show Dinosaurs. And I actually interviewed him for the Labyrinth episode of my David Bowie podcast uh, about a year and a half ago. And yeah, he told me all about the kind of crazy way that he came to find himself being Kermit for, I think, about 20 years, 19 years, something like that, a long time. And he said that he was at a um, a memorial for Jim Henson, and literally at this memorial, people were coming up to him asking him if he wanted to be the voice of Kermit. I don't even think they ever phrased it as "be the voice of Kermit." I think it was "be Kermit." I don't think they would ever be as so you know plausive as just sell you do Kermit's voice. Uh, And he said I was shocked and almost kind of offended by people saying that because it had never crossed my mind in the least. And then he said that the subject was raised again a short time later when they were all in Disney World doing a. tribute special to Jim Henson and all the, you know, inner circle of the Henson crew went down for that. And he said, while I was there, one night I went over and we met with Jane Henson, who's Jim Henson's widow, Brian and Frank, Jim Henson's kids. And Brian Henson mentioned me doing the voice of Kermit. I was just overwhelmed by the request. It was a huge honor. And it also just scared the daylights out of me, the thought of trying it. And Heather Henson, Jim's daughter, arranged for Kermit to be sent to me in Atlanta so that I could fiddle around with it for a bit. I remember him telling this to me. He said, I remember taking the puppet out of the box and the puppet smelled like Jim. I'd put Kermit on before while fooling around in the shop, but I'd never performed him. So I put him on and I was standing in front of a mirror and I held him up and I sort of had him turn to me. And I got this sense of this voice in my head of Kermit saying, come on, I need to talk, do a voice. But I could not do it. I just took the puppet off, set it on a shelf in another room, and I didn't touch it for almost a month. He was afraid of it, basically. Heavy lies the crown. And he ultimately performed Kermit for the first time for a televised special celebrating Jim Henson, but he told MuppetCentral.com that Christmas Carol is what he considers to be the first real performance of Kermit. He says, quote, I went to London for the start of Christmas Carol, and they'd already started working on the music a couple days before I got there. We pre-recorded all the songs before we did the movie, so the first thing I was going to have to do was go in and record Kermit's voice, which I was super nervous about because I didn't have the puppet to rely on. There was something about seeing the puppet as one was hearing my voice at that stage that made it more believable, and it got other people into it, too. But if I just walked in and did Kermit's voice, they didn't buy it, necessarily. They were still hearing Jim. If I had the puppet on, it was more believable. And true to the spirit of Christmas
5: Carol, Whitmire's nerves on the whole subject were eased in a journey to another plane of existence. Wow, yeah, wow. I didn't even think of that. He said, uh, the same interview, he said, I got to London early in the morning after an overnight flight and they gave me a day to relax before I had to go in the next day and record. So I was just trying to catch up on sleep. I Went to the hotel and checked in, got up to the room and closed all the blinds to get it as dark as I could to try and go to sleep. I was just so nervous knowing I had to go and record the next day. I laid down and I was drifting off to sleep. I was thinking that this was the kind of thing that if this were a new character that Jim assigned me to do and I was feeling this nervous about it, I would go to him and say, Jim, I'm really nervous about this. I need some kind of direction on it, some help. So I was thinking those kinds of thoughts, and I drifted off to sleep. I had this dream that I was in the lobby of a hotel, and outside the windows, everything was white. There was nothing outside these glass windows, and it was kind of a dark, dimly lit hotel lobby. I walk into this lobby and look over, and there were lots of people around, you know, hustle and bustle. And Jim's at the desk. I go over to the desk and I say, oh, God, it is great to see you. And he said, yeah, thanks. And he was kind of distracted. I said, listen, I have to tell you, I'm really nervous about doing Kermit tomorrow. I've got to do his voice for the first time, really, and I'm real nervous. He stopped and there was a thoughtful gesture Jim would do where he would take both of his index fingers and put them under his chin. And he did that and thought and he said, it will pass, which is exactly what Jim would have said. Then he turned and he said, I've really got to run and he took off out the door I woke up and I felt great I remembered this dream and I went in the next day I did the work and it was smooth it worked fine and I felt great
4: Oh, I love that Jim
5: Jim Henson's Jim Henson's charity of spirit transcended death <laughs>
4: sounds <laughs> about right I mean you could say it's transcended death for the last 30 years oh oh I know I know Steve Whitmire, in addition to taking over the mantle of Kermit, also voiced Rizzo the Rat, who I think he created. Uh, And Rizzo in The Muppets Christmas Carol becomes the Gonzo as Dickens foil throughout the film, uh, which is something that was screenwriter Jerry Jewell's idea. And he's talking to the Muppet zine. The Gonzo and Rizzo team was one of the best things to come out of The Muppets Christmas Carol. As soon as I put them together, they started acting like they were brothers, like they'd never been apart. I can't imagine why it took us so long to see this. You've seen a lot of them recently, probably because all the writers have been so excited to have a new comedy team to work with. And for example, when Gonzo tells Rizzo that he's such an idiot for climbing over a gate instead of walking through it, that was apparently a verbatim reference to a ribbing that Gonzo puppeteer Dave Goltz delivered to Rizzo's voice and operator Steve Whitmire. So I mean, it's basically the two puppeteers razzing on each other in real life. They just wrote that into the script. Apparently constantly like it was a repeating thing. He would
5: just keep being like you are such an idiot. I love that scene. That scene is it made me laugh uproariously as a child when he goes God save my little broken body. <laughs> 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 oh, perfect. Uh, speaking of suffering Brian Henson said in the commentary track to the film right through this movie Jerry Jewell had such wonderful ideas for different ways to make Rizzo suffer. <laughs> and we all threw in more ideas. So right through the movie, Rizzo's suffering all the time, and it just made us laugh. (laughs) But speaking of suffering... Yes. Whitmire's new role meant that he had to abandon one of his previous Muppets, Bean Bunny, who quickly found his new lot in life, which was also to suffer. Uh, This is a funny bit of Muppets apocrypha. This character had originally created in a one-off short inspired by Henson's daughter, seeing some rabbits i guess heather on a, a walk and she was like dad put some we got to do something he was like i'll do something with rabbits so that's where bean bunny comes from and then when they had the jim henson hour they ported the character over What was that? that
4: i don't know that the jim was henson that like a,
5: hour it was that like a post muppet show TV yeah. show i imagine short-lived yes um they only aired nine episodes and canceled it but yes the Muppets always hated cuteness, Frank Oz told, <laughs> <laughs> said in 2012. As a matter of fact, Jim built a character called Bean Bunny so the audience could think he's cute and take the onus off the others. And in fact, when Kermit introduces him on the Jim Henson Hour, he says, we hired Bean to be cute so the rest of us don't have to bother. <laughs>
4: I love how grouchy <laughs> and like cynical and over it, all these you know ostensibly children's characters are
5: yeah unfortunately that show struggled with its ratings and one of the last episodes that aired confronted this problem head on and uh they they made the discovery that ratings were at their highest whenever the show featured sex violence or bean bunny or a combination of the three and so that cutesy character began getting shoehorned into as many sketches going forward as possible and uh obviously it didn't take the show was cancelled And once Whitmire took over Kermit, Bean Bunny fulfilled the role of whipping boy in all Muppets productions, essentially. (sighs) (laughs) Brian Henson said in the Christmas Carol DVD commentary track, The idea was that he was so cute and sweet and sappy that we would never do that in the Muppets. And he was so obnoxiously sweet that everybody didn't like him. Inside the Muppet Company, we love to hate Bean Bunny. And that is why in the film, he is constantly living in
4: Dickensian squalor or being physically abused. I, we see... The Muppets Christmas Carol was how I first met Bean Bunny, and I had no idea. <laughs> it's much sadder when poly- you don't know the backstory. No, <laughs> at all. And I just remember that like, Scrooge tosses him off his doorstep, and then after, I think it's one more sleep till Christmas, the yep. camera pans off of Kermit, he's sh- and he's, he's shivering. shivering under like a newspaper or something in like a snowbank. It's the sa- one of the saddest things I can conjure up. It's, it's. But does
5: it make you feel better knowing that they hated him? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's somehow. <laughs> That makes it worse. <laughs> uh, Muppet movie magic. Just a quick rundown of some of the... <laughs> yes, that's that was my segue from that. Uh, here's a quick rundown of some of the special effects behind the scenes stuff that went into the movie. Pulled it from a variety of sources, including the uh, DVD commentary Brian Henson does, which he does alongside Rizzo and Gonzo and Kermit and Miss Piggy. It's medium funny. Um... <laughs> The London rooftops in the opening credits are all models, uh, obviously, but they stood three feet tall. They were built at Shepperton in London, and uh, Henson explained to Uprox, the first shot is actually pretty extraordinary and took an enormous amount of work. The models were only about three foot tall, and the camera is moving back through the buildings, and it's actually moving at a very, very slow speed, which is why you can see in the sky, if you look closely, little jumps because it's smoke creating these clouds, and the smoke level never really stays the same. So the camera was rolling very slowly, maybe one or two frames a second, so it gave time for the crew to push the buildings in front of the camera. So there were 30 people pushing around these three-foot building models to get them into place just before the camera uh, reached them to get them into the shot. That same model is also in the It Feels Like Christmas song with the Ghost of Christmas Present singing. That ends with a rising crane shot out of the set, and you can see the little short buildings in the background. It kind of throws off the sense of scale of it. And Henson was like, yeah, he, I, I, I knew that was going to be a problem, but we wanted to get that crane shot in there, and I didn't <laughs> think people would notice.
4: <laughs> Movie magic! <laughs> <laughs> and Muppet magic. We touched on this earlier, but shooting muppets alongside humans is always a challenge because as you said muppets are operated from below so floors had to be removed and replaced as muppets positioning dictated and michael kane had to walk across narrow planks between the muppets and their operators
5: yeah so what you think is like a full street scene or like a full floor scene is actually probably like a foot of plywood or a foot of the whatever they're using is a floor that
4: he has to like shimmy across <laughs> incredible it, yeah it really is i mean and that's i mean it's incredible for the actors but for the puppeteers it's even more amazing just to see yeah. like how they operate i mean most muppets you'll notice are left-handed because most puppeteers are right-handed and they have their right hand as the mouth in most cases i think stuff like Big Bird and whatever is a, is a bit different, but they'll operate the mouth and then they use their left hand to operate the left arm with a dowel. So you'll notice their right arm is just kind of like hanging loose unless they have a second puppeteer to help operate it, which is usually rare for the smaller Muppets like Kermit. Dude,
5: the dark crystal ones
4: that they put oh, them in are like man. medieval torture devices. Yeah.
5: They have to like, oh my God, just go look, Google some of the behind the scenes of that or how they had to like trudge through these.
3: Or labyrinth.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Nuts. And being that they're puppets, ordinary actions like blowing out a candle are hard because there's no breath coming from their mouth. So for the scene where Kermit blows out a candle, they had to time the firing of an air gun at the flame to the moment that Kermit tuckers his lips to make the blowing motion I love that <laughs> and similarly Henson said that the most difficult shot in the entire film was the close-up of Kermit locking the door at Scrooge's office
5: yeah. Why is how that? do you get those how do you get those little felt hands oh. to have enough torque and grip to hold a key to lock a working door or fire a gun <laughs> <laughs> um cgi was in its infancy when this film was made so the shot of the penguins ice skating had to be achieved by they just matted the ice and optically matted it it's a bit of a, more of an old school technique uh there's another big show-offy set piece where kermit is walking down the street and he's singing he has robin on his shoulder that oh, took 10... Tis a season
4: to ten be to jolly be, and joyous. Mm. tra Yeah, it has got the little... Oh, I yeah. love that scene. You kind of kicked into a pretty decent Kermit there. If you gave me like 20 minutes, I could get a good Kermit going.
5: Okay, okay. I'm looking up some of the lines in the background here. Uh, some of the better lines from the movie. I mean, I, in many I, ways, I am Kermit. I mean, let's let's be real here. That's true. Um, what was the... It's all right, children. Life oh, is that's, made up of, that's of meetings too. and partings.
3: That is the way of it.
5: Uh, uh. I'm sure that we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that was there among us. <sighs> <Man. laughs> I love how all of uh, all, all these lines are so good. Tomorrow you will become a man of business. <laughs> That's really Sam good. Sam the Eagle That's is uh, good. You will love business. It is the American way. Uh, Sam? God, it's just that our story takes place in England. Oh. <laughs> it is the British way. <laughs> So good. (laughs) It's very good. Uh, uh, where was I? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So that shot of Kermit carrying his nephew down the street on his shoulder, 10 puppeteers. Um, they, they shot that against a blue screen because there was no way that they were going to be able to do it live. But what it is, is Kermit is walking on a rotating drum that is patterned with the street. So they have 10 puppeteers making him move and sing and everything. On a drum that's rotating under him, and then they composite that in. Uh, Henson said that this was the film's money shot, to which I say, I don't think you're using that word correctly.
4: <laughs> I don't think that word means what you think it means.
5: <laughs> uh, I'm just, I want to do different quotes that I keep. Mother always taught me never eat singing food. <laughs> uh, originally, the ghost of Christmas present was supposed to be huge. Uh, throughout his (laughs) every scene that he was in but Henson realized me better man man." Uh, Henson realized that would be a logistical nightmare (laughs) so they achieved the shrinking effect by shooting him against a blue screen and then tracking backwards with the camera it's a neat little another all these little old school you can you can find like really the history of filmmaking special effects in all the Muppet movies because the way that they got around this they were uh, uh, you know just something as simple as a reverse pool and then they would mat it in uh this is gross the ghost of <laughs> the ghost of what, what ghost is she the baby ghost that's the christmas baby ghost
4: past. is past
5: yeah yeah ghost of christmas past was a rod puppet that was submerged into a tank filled with baby oil because um you know she has the floating robes and so to get that look all ethereal right yeah i'm just trying to remember exactly what she looks like she looks like a an american girl doll in like Oh god, I robes. hate that. Yeah, I mean she yeah, looks like a like frozen epic.
4: Titanic victim.
5: <laughs> but apparently uh the cigar chomping executive <laughs> uh saw some of the line budget for this and <laughs> kind of, why do they need so much baby oil for this? Isn't a Wallace Beery wrestling pick? <laughs> so They moved those scenes over to a water tank, which achieved the same flowing effect on the robes, but then uh, started wreaking havoc with the uh, rod system and the paint on the on the Muppet. So they had to finish that under
4: duress. I mean, I I always come away with every time I look at the background of any kind of Muppet production, with just so much respect for how much of a gigantic pain in the ass it is to do all this. Even the simplest things like blowing out a candle or locking a door. Or walking down a street. But they went old school for the Statler and Waldorf number Marley and Marley. Of course, there's only one Marley in the Christmas Carol, but it's too good not to, you know, you can't break up the team. You got to have Statler and Waldorf. Hmm. Uh, These Muppets were powdered down to make them very white. And then they were shot against black velvet with the puppeteers wearing black, which is a classic Muppets technique, and then superimposed on the film image. And yeah, this was the most common Muppet compositing technique that was used way back in the Muppet Show days in the 70s, rather than, you know, Green screen shots or CGI stuff that they would use today.
1: We
5: were always heckling you. It's good to be heckling again. It's good to be doing anything <laughs> again. <laughs> oh! And then they turn into then they their their but, laughter turns into moans. <laughs> we're Marley and Marley. Oh. the Cratchit daughters were created specifically oh. for puppeteers Steve Whitmire and Dave Goals to make fun of the way that Frank Oz performed <laughs> Miss Piggy. <laughs> Brian
4: Henson added on each other the whole production.
5: Brian Henson added, so we had no idea what would happen when Piggy and Kermit decided to have kids. So in this movie we decided to throw logic to the wind and say, okay, so Miss Piggy and Kermit have had kids. So all the girls are pigs and all the boys are frogs. There's no rhyme or reason to it. We got to pun it square and try to figure that out. <laughs> I I want to see the rejected draft for that, where it's some kind of Cronenbergian, <laughs> uh, like like John Carpenter's The Thing. Like they got Rob Bottin to come in and do really <laughs> elaborate, like latex prosthetics work of like a horrible half pig, half frog thing. And they were like,
4: yeah, no. <laughs> Only marginally more traumatizing than some of the other things in this movie. <laughs> I just want to add that the role of Clara, who's Scrooge's nephew, Fred's wife, is played by Robin Weaver, who is famous to any Britcom fans out there as Simon's mom on The Inbetweeners, one of my favorite British comedies. Huh. Hmm. You really gotta watch that. I really think you'd love that. Mm-hmm. And in the scene at the end of the movie, you can see a shop called Micklewhite's, which of course is a tribute to Michael Caine's birth name, Morris Joseph Micklewhite Jr., which is (laughs) arguably as strong as his screen name, Michael Caine, I'd say. Uh, In this movie's first scene, there's also a shop sign that reads, Duncan and Kenworthy. Producer Duncan Kenworthy was one of the creators of Jim Henson's Fraggle Rocks. No, Jim Henson's Fraggle Songs. And there's yet another street sign that reads Statler and Waldorf's but it's obscured in a key shot but you know we all know what that comes from.
5: I forgot about the scene where, where he uses Rizzo to wipe the window and, and Rizzo <laughs> yeah. just goes thank you for making me a part of this.
4: Oh. <laughs> uh. And the song, One More Sleep Till Christmas, ends with Kermit staring at the sky as a shooting star streaks by. And in the DVD audio commentary, Brian Henson said that this was a nod to the Muppet movie where a shooting star flies over Kermit. And in the years since, it's become kind of a, a recurring tribute to uh, to Jim Henson Kermit watching a shooting star pass overhead. Which is, Ugh, I know. Gives you, gives you a lot of feelings. It does, yeah.
5: As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
3: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time, time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you will get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
2: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
1: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
2: We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them.
1: From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time.
2: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett or how the yeah, yeah, yes inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now the
5: eyes and ears of the world turns, as it so often does when we're in control of it, <laughs> to Paul Williams. <laughs> yes. one of my favorite songwriters, people, uh, Daft Punk guest vocalists. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. One of my, probably my favorite president of ASCAP, (laughs) you know, if I'm really prepared to make a bold statement. Uh, Paul Williams had written classics like Rainy Days and Mondays, and We've Only Just Begun for The Carpenters, an old-fashioned love song for Three Dog Night, and Evergreen for Barbara Streisand from Stars Born all by the time he guested on The Muppet Show in 1976. On that shoot, he fell in love with The Muppet's World and also hit it off with Jim Henson, who asked Williams to write songs for his Christmas-themed TV movie Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas in 1977 and The Muppet Movie in 1979. Jordan, do you know anything about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas?
4: It sounds really familiar, but I, no, no. Nope, I don't know Uh,
5: about it. I originally thought there was going to be a much better story. I One of the things that I first looked up for this was the John Denver Muppets album. Oh, yeah. Nothing has been written about that. Not a word. It's got a bunch of Wrecking Crew guys on it. Like, I'm pretty sure how Blaine plays drums on it. But, like, not a drop of ink has been spilled over that record.
4: I know very little, yeah
5: uh anyway the muppet movie has some of williams most indelible creations for the muppets and elsewhere uh moving right along i hope that something better comes along i'm going to go back there someday and of course rainbow connection one of the greatest songs of all time which earned williams and co-writer kenny asher an oscar nom and uh williams was also nominated for an oscar for uh the film's score
4: But Williams lost the better part of the next decade to a combination of vodka and cocaine. Going, this is him talking to Vulture in 2017, from Johnny Carson's couch to peeking out the windows through the Venetian blinds looking for the tree police. It was Mm. a dark, dark period of my life. And talking to the LA Times in 1992, he said, I hit absolute physical bottom in 89. I wasn't crawling the streets, and I wasn't poor, but I was spiritually bankrupt. And I got to the point where I was having full-blown psychotic episodes from the combination of drugs and alcohol in my system. So I finally had to get down on my knees and ask for help. And at the age of 49, Paul Williams entered rehab and uh, emerged in March of 1990, basically as changed as Scrooge the day that he wakes up on Christmas, in a sense. He said, Once I was detoxed, once I had been chemically relieved of the substances, the cravings were gone. This is him talking to Vulture. I thought that was an absolute miracle, because I could not, in fact, imagine going a day without the drugs. The relief I felt was huge, in that I no longer woke up desperate to find what I needed, but the contentedness that I felt with the world around me was remarkable. All of a sudden, you have that feeling of being cared for. You have that feeling of belonging. And he also told the LA Times that he was dealing with a new problem now, unfortunately, writer's block. I just couldn't write, couldn't do it for a couple of years. I was terrified. So when the Muppet Christmas Carol came along, it became especially important for me because it's the first song score that I've done sober. You find a lot of creative people who've who've been to rehab either going on stage or creating for the first time since they think they can't do it. They're so used to relying on whatever that crutch was, whatever drugs or alcohol, whatever it is that, yeah, it's usually a big hurdle. Uh, He continued, when I got sober, the career I thought I had was pretty much gone. I just fell in love with recovery. I felt like that's all I wanted to do. And I didn't know if I was ever going to write music again. And then I was asked to write songs for the Muppet Christmas Carol. Every now and then the universe will line up to do something at the right time in your life. And later in the interview with Vulture, he says simply, Muppet Christmas Carol became a bridge back to songwriting. That's beautiful. And the themes of the film wound up as the perfect way for Paul Williams to process his new life. He said, I was longing to live life in a totally new way, one day at a time, trusting that what I needed was within me to get things done. And I'm sitting down to write these songs, and I'm writing about Scrooge, a man who's learning to live life in a whole new way, who's having a spiritual awakening. So some of Williams' songs
5: for the film, Scrooge's introduction song, Marley and Marley, One More Sleep Till Christmas, It Feels Like Christmas, are among his best. Bar none, and it was Michael Caine's uh, first ever time singing in a film, and so he turned in a song called "Thankful Heart," which he said was a look inside his own heart after getting sober. I just love how much this film ended up meaning to Paul Williams' sobriety journey. It's mm. really, that's yeah, really incredible. But you can't always escape your past, and when he started working with Caine, they were pre-recording their songs at London CTS Studios a few months before production which began in June 1992. Williams was there. He, he told Vulture, I walked up to Michael Caine and introduced myself. I said, wonderful to meet you. I'm so excited to be working with you. He said, are you out of your mind? We spent an entire weekend together in London. We were at the White Elephant gambling. Paul Williams did not remember. <laughs> um, the music for the film, though, has famously had one glaring omission thanks to enemy of the pod Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> uh there's a ballad called when love is gone um mm. that uh scrooge's fiance sings to him knowing essentially that he doesn't love her anymore and michael cain in the vision starts duetting with her uh it's actually quite a heartfelt scene yeah. because he's like singing with her seeing this scene in the past of her being like i i, I know you don't love me anymore uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg th- thought that, uh, it slowed things down a little too much <laughs> in a movie aimed at children. Uh, William says, he, he says it's one of the most touching moments, I think, in his career. Uh, he says of Michael Caine's acting in that scene. And then he said, it's also one of my favorite things that I've ever written in my life, the song. So, Meredith Braun, who landed the role of Scrooge's soon-to-be ex fiance while performing in Les Mis on the West End, she sang her portion beautifully. Brian Henson told EW, there was never a reason to even do a second take with her. And then he added, perhaps unnecessarily, Paul and I just sort of melted and fell in love with her. We call that the Kate Bush syndrome. Mm. Kane, who, as we mentioned, had never sung in a movie before, had a somewhat harder row to hoe. (laughs) Henson said, Michael did need to do lots of takes. (laughs) And it's tough because Michael can put himself into such an emotionally vulnerable state that he starts sobbing. He is genuinely there emotionally so it's tough to stay in the studio and keep going for a line over and over but we had to just to try to tweak the melody but meredith sat in the recording studio with him and was extremely supportive meredith braun said kane just wanted to play everything for real he was joking that he had to feel it rather than sing it Mm -hmm. and he was lovely he just wanted to do a good job williams agreed he said michael doesn't perform the song he experiences the song And great voices don't impress me nearly as much as that honesty in a performance. I'd rather have somebody whisper a song and feel it than sing it like Pavarotti and not connect with the feelings. Well said, Paul Williams. But all that said, Brian Henson told EW, Katzenberg never forced me to do anything, but he said, Do you see how antsy those kids are getting? He's like, it's a little too adult emotional for little kids to stay connected. Uh, He said, the movie does play well without the song, but I obviously preferred having the song in. I think it's good for kids to be pulled into deeply emotional moments, even if they feel slightly awkward about it when they're in a movie theater. Katzenberg, uh, part of his track record also includes wanting to cut Part of Your World, one of the greatest Ashman Menken I Want songs of all time from Little Mermaid. And also passing on uh, an American tale. Full yeah. stop. What did he say? Something about no one wants to see Jewish mice? Or was that just us riffing?
4: No, that was him. <laughs> That's a direct quote from him.
5: <laughs> yeah, for the exact same reason. He said he observed children getting antsy at a test screening of Little Mermaid and wanted part of your world cut. Ashman Menken, finest hour, nearly cut because of enemy the pod, Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> Well, the agreement was, Brian Henson told the BBC in 2020, that we would remove it from the theatrical release, but then put it back in for all of the television and video releases from then on in. And I remember this being a part of the movie because I had it on VHS. It also went out on Laserdisc. But when it came time for them to clean it up and put it back out on DVD and streaming, Disney had just lost the footage. (laughs) and so that scene has been absent for years on DVDs, Blu-rays and and where
4: and I guess on Disney Plus where it's streaming but There is a happy coda here. In 2020, the only good thing to happen in 2020, gearing up for a 4K (laughs) release of The Muppet's Christmas Carol, Disney found the missing section. The love is found! And surprised (laughs) Hansen with it when he visited the studio. And in September 2022, during the D23 Expo panel celebrating the film, it was announced that When Love is Gone will be reinstated to the film and available on Disney Plus on December 11th, 2022 exactly 30 years after the film's initial release i have i have a thought go on they removed this slow song from the theatrical release because kids were getting antsy but they left yeah. it in for home movie and tv kids are in, <laughs> kids are in movie theaters they're getting antsy they can't go anywhere so it'll be you know it'll, <laughs> it'll pass but if it's on tv or at home they can change the channel they can shut the thing off they can go so it almost seems like it should have be another way around
5: it probably had to do with money and Paul Williams thing.
4: And, oh, you yeah. know,
5: like uh, something in his contract where you like you got to use the songs that I that I wrote. Um, Disney pushed Muppet Christmas Carol. They made it was their widest released film of the holiday season, which means it was in the most theaters. Uh, and the second widest release under the Disney banner that year, preempted only slightly by a film you may have heard of once or twice in your life, Aladdin. But it opened in 6th place. Perhaps unsurprising, given that it was going up against Home Alone 2, Aladdin, A Few Good Men, and The Bodyguard. But still, it went on to pull a very respectable $129 million globally on a $12 million budget. So, pretty, pretty good for Brian's first time out. Uh, and its success helped pave the way for the next Muppet movie, being another classic literature adaptation,
4: Muppet Treasure Island. I have no memory of this being in theaters. I always kind of thought, even t- to this. that it was like either a direct to vhs release or a tv special or something i had no idea that it was released on that scale and made that much money
5: well uh, they initially had pitched it as a um as a tv movie that's what you know bray sold it to ABCs, yeah yeah but then at some point as the script got together disney was like no we'll make it a feature i didn't see it in theaters i definitely saw it on um i saw him up at treasure island in theaters (laughs) which was disappointing
4: yeah it was uh, written by crit- james v hart who wrote hook if i recall
5: hmm, that's the one with tim curry in it right? Yeah,
4: yeah 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 yeah
5: critics were not exactly bowled over by muppet christmas carol janet maslin and roger ebert being somewhat restrained in still mostly positive reviews but nobody really gushed over it gene siskel gave it a thumbs down while praising what? michael kane in a role him uh i'm <laughs> rotten tomatoes the film currently has a 75 percent based on 51 reviews while on metacritic it's got a 64 out of 100 what uh yeah uh there really is no accounting for taste what what are the possible complaints for this see what maslin said i thought about pulling her i didn't want to give you know give them space but let's see what maslin and and ebert said janet maslin reviewing it for the new york times summarized the film as not a great show of wit or tunefulness and the ingenious cross-generational touches are fairly rare but there is a lively kiddie version of the dickens tale one that very young viewers ought to understand roger ebert gave the film three out of four stars, praising its technical achievements, but said it could have done with a few more songs than it has, and the merrymaking at the end might have carried on a little longer just to offset the gloom of most of Scrooge's tour through his lifetime spent spreading misery. <laughs> Dave Kerr at the Chicago Tribune reviewed the film as a talky, plodding film that seems likely to bore children and adults in equal measure. Ah. Variety wrote that Muppet's Christmas Carol is not as enchanting or as amusing as the previous entries in the Muppet series. Well, sure. Uh, but nothing can really diminish the late Jim Henson's irresistibly appealing
4: characters. Hmm. What a scattershot. Like I feel like everybody's praising yeah. and, and criticizing wildly different things. Well, there is no accounting for taste. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, here's Dave Goltz, who is responsible for Gonzo and Waldorf. He said, I've never been able to watch Christmas Carol dry eyed This is him talking to the Guardian. The comedy deepens the emotion. Yeah, well said. It ambushes you. It remains my favorite film we've done by a good margin.
5: And I want to leave the final words here to Brian Henson, uh, which just feels appropriate considering what he was going through uh, to midwife this wonderful film that we all love so much into being. This is to Uprox. It was a really wonderful atmosphere on set very very supportive environment and we all knew it was working as soon as we started shooting we were like wow this is really working it's a whole new direction and it's fun but it's poignant maybe it's a little more poignant than people were used to from the Muppets being but at that time it felt right in that it was the first big production after Jim's death it is a more touching and heartfelt story than the Muppets had done up until then I agree I think that, yeah, I mean, just knowing what went into this movie and what everyone was reeling with. And you can look at this movie just as people overcoming a a tragedy and pulling together to make a great piece of art. And uh, yeah, I have nothing but nice things to say about this movie. Yeah, it's the movie that introduced me to uh, the Muppets. Oh, really? I didn't. You should have led with that.
4: Oh. Holy sh Well, I'm closing with it.
5: (laughs) uh yeah well everyone queue up uh on december 11th queue up the restored version of the muppet christmas carol on disney plus or uh you know don't do that don't give them your money um i don't know just watch the movie feel the joy that you felt as a child (laughs) thank you folks for listening this has been too much information i'm alex eigel and i'm jordan run
4: we'll catch you next time Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder-June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.